This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Gary Saul Morrison to tell us all about his book titled Wonder Confronts Certainty, Russian Writers on the Timeless Questions and Why Their Answers Matter, just published in 2023 by Harvard University Press. This is a fascinating book that traces and helps us understand some of the really key intellectual debates that have coursed through two centuries of Russian writing, um, as some of the greatest minds have thought about some pretty big questions, um, argued with each other about them. Um, And of course, this covers a really interesting period as well from the uh, Russian Empire into the Soviet Union, and yet the debates continue. So, Gary, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about these debates. Well, thank you so much for having me. Before we dive into all things Russian literature, though, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Uh, well, I teach Russian literature. I have been for you know half a century almost at Northwestern University, before that the University of Pennsylvania. And what I specialize and teach classes on you know, the great classics, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Chekhov. And what I've tried to do with students is get them really to love literature generally, and Russian literature in particular, um, you know, by showing how really understanding these books can change the way they think about the most fundamental questions in life. Well, that's the spirit of Russian literature, you know, as... They're not embarrassed. This is, you know, Virginia Woolf used to point this out. Um, they're not embarrassed to ask the ultimate questions, you know, about life's meaning, about, you know, <clears throat> what love is and what the right kind of love to choose is. Any questions about, you know, what makes a, a meaningful life, what makes history operate, the really important questions. Um, and, you know, the students generally haven't had that elsewhere. I would think that's what... In, you know, a college education should be, but you pretty much have to go to Russian literature now for that. So I've been writing books on that and um, lecturing about it. And the way this book came about was um, not by my own initiative. 
um, an editor at Harvard University Press, who's no longer there, John Kuka, approached me about 10 years ago and said, you know, you've been writing books on Tolstoy, <clears throat> Dostoevsky, and aphorisms, and philosophy of time, and all sorts of co- things connected with literature and philosophy, um, but you've never done something that I have in mind, you know, he called it the book I was born to write, on the whole Russian tradition and its significance. And I said, oh, is that all, <clears throat> you know? And he said, no, I mean, of course you can limit it in some ways, but basically why should people read Russian literature? What should they learn from the Russian cultural historical experience? And I said, well, you know, and he said, we're having great success with really big books. You know, they made a lot of money on the Piketty book on inequality and various other books. Um, we want you to do something really big, you know, 200,000 words um, that would cover this the whole period. And I said, but, you know, I can't really do that because I'm a 19th century specialist. Um, and this would involve the Soviet period and even today. And he said, just take your time. <clears throat> we'll give you lots of time. So I decided I would actually do that. And over the next, you know, five, six, seven years, whenever I had a chance, you know, to review a contemporary book or you know, write something about the Soviet period. <clears throat> I took the opportunity so I could learn this, and gradually it all fell into place that there was one continuing debate that everybody understood, all the great writers and thinkers, and participated in as if they were in the same room, although, of course, they were, could be a century and a half apart. And I decided to structure it in that way. Imagine that all these people were together and debating the ultimate questions in the spirit that you know Russian literature and Russian um, thinkers like to do, and so that's you know how it came about and how I decided to structure it. So, besides being a specialist in the nineteenth century, um, why else did you decide to start this book in the reign of Alexander the Second? Oh, that's a, a really interesting question. Um, basically. It's because in that period, he started ruling in 1855, and in that period that follows, in the next 25 years, that's when, first of all, the big questions of Russian literature and Russian thought get formulated for the first time. You know, can there be morality if we're nothing but material objects? You know, questions, are we simply completely determined or... You know, can we choose? Uh, what is the, will a theory, if we've got the right theory, guarantee, you know, a perfect society? Or is theory the wrong way to go? Is it too simplistic? All these questions start getting asked. So that's one reason. A second reason is that this is the period, let's say, between, let's say, 1861 and 1881, when you, it is probably the most intense period of creativity in the history of literature, you know, um, a 20-year period. I mean, um, you know, you can compare it, let's say, you know, to, you know, England from Shakespeare to Milton, but that's a much longer period. And the same with, with the Greeks. Here you've got, you know, just in 20 years, you've got, you know, the great novels of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Turgenev and, you know, the memoirs of Alexander Herzen and, and you know, if you want to go into art and music, you've got, you've got similar um, things. And it's the great period of ideology formulating the, the ultimate questions. So that's the second reason, the intense literary creativity. And the third 
is that this is when you have formed a group that was to define the rest of Russian history, really, um, the intelligentsia. <clears throat> but in the Russian sense of that word, you know, we get the word intelligentsia from Russian, but it did not mean uh, in Russia what, <clears throat> what it means among us or what it means in Russia today. <clears throat> it meant people with a particular set of attitudes and commitments. You know, they were, they were committed above all, they identified with not their social class, um, you know, or their place in society, their profession, or their ethnic group, but their ideology. <clears throat> ideology defined them. And then the ideology had to be, you know, rather narrow, it had to be some form of materialism, socialism, atheism, or anarchism. <clears throat> you, so that, for example, if you a believer in God, <clears throat> you could not be a member of the intelligentsia. Tolstoy was, you know, out because, first of all, he's a believer in God. Second of all, because he used his title of count, which means he was connected to a social group. <clears throat> um, you know, it was a ideological, you didn't even have to read many books. <clears throat> you know, it's not as if you had to be an intellectual who did. You had to believe the ideas whether you'd read the books or not. <clears throat> um, and that group was to generate, you know, the great radical thinkers and ultimately, the people who took over Russia in 1917, I mean, Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, they were all typical members of the intelligentsia, or intelligence, as they were called. And so from 1917 on, Russian history becomes what happens when the intelligentsia gains power. And so those are the three reasons that, you know, that I, I picked that period. All this starts... You know, in this reign, it's the reign of the great social reforms. Alexander II was the greatest social reformer <clears throat> probably in, Ru in Russian history. He's the one who liberated the serfs, set up a Western-type judicial system, you know, limited the term of service in the army, many, many set up institutions of local government, um, astonishing kinds of, you know, um, reforms. And strangely enough, just when reform was taking place, as it never had before and probably never would again, um, this is when revolutionaries and terror, the, the modern terrorist movement, another Russian creation, um, takes place, and they have, and they, you know, they eventually murder this <clears throat> reformist czar and set in a period of reaction, you know, after that, and then the rest of you know the imperial period is you know fighting the reactionary government until finally they take over, or one factionism takes over in in 1917. Um, so it's very, it's a very exciting time, this period. And that was my traditional specialty. And then I could see how all these issues became really, really sharpened by the Soviet, you know, experience <clears throat> when conditions were so extreme that questions of morality took on a real sharpness that they hadn't even in Russia before. So that makes a lot of sense as kind of both an interesting period to study and also sort of it's quite stunning reading the opening part of the book, realizing, as you said, just how many of these people are operating pretty much at the same time. I mean, if they're not actually all in the same room, they're pretty close to it um, and creates a lot of intensity to engage with there. And yes, in fact, I, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I tried to show that by, you know, um, taking 
translating some the table of contents of the leading literary journal, the Russian Herald at the time. And, you know, you would, if you subscribe to it, you might get in one issue, um, you know, novels were serialized. And so you get an extract from, oh, a book that was then called The Year 1805, later changed its name to War and Peace. <clears throat> and across, you know, in the same issue, you get another, you know, installment of Crime and Punishment, <clears throat> you know, plus, you know, articles on Darwin, you know, translation of a translation of a Wilkie Collins novel. <clears throat> I mean, it was incredibly intense. And then when, you know, Crime and Punishment, which is shorter than War and Peace, is finished, you would then get Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot, taking place next to, you know, War and Peace. In the 1870s, this editor, he must have been the most fortunate editor who ever lived, had limited space, and he had to choose between a novel by Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. <clears throat> Imagine, you know, that kind of choice. Well, I don't know, Shakespeare, we're going to do Milton this this month. <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Um you know, the intensity, and you see it all right there in the table of contents there of these journals. Hmm. It was very clear. Um, I'm glad you included those examples in the book. It just made it incredibly obvious. In that answer, you briefly um, obviously made a comparison with Shakespeare and Milton, with English literature. And yet this intensity is pretty, it's pretty extreme. So in the book, you also talk about how Russian literature might be actually more accurately compared to something like the Hebrew Bible rather than French or English literature. Can you tell us about that? Yes, but that's, yes, that's, although that's not so much about the intensity, it's about the attitudes Russians have traditionally had about, about their literature. And it's, you know, Russian, the, the idea is that it is the most valuable thing in the world that a culture exists to produce literature. You know, when Dostoevsky was reviewing um, the installments of Tolstoy's uh, Anna Karenina when it came out and in one review he says this is a paraphrase but he says at last the existence of the Russian people has been justified now I can't imagine a Frenchman or an Englishman you know <clears throat> thinking that their existence had to be justified <clears throat> but if they did it's they wouldn't you know certainly pick a novel right you know I don't know American might pick the iMac or, or, or Coca-Cola <clears throat> right but no they wouldn't think of picking literature but you know, the Russians have this sense that it's it, it's not that literature exists to reflect people's lives. It's that people live. Their justification for existence is to produce great literature. It's a, a body of sacred texts. So the very phrase Russian literature carries an aura, very different from French and English. Like, you know, the only thing I then could compare it to is how the ancient Hebrews must have reviewed have viewed their holy books at the time when it was still possible to add you know new books to the canon because <clears throat> the Russians are still doing that. It, it's 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 sacred. It's and that's the only thing it's it's really like. And you know many Russians still look at it that way. But it, it explains, for example, you know why you know in in the Soviet period they took so much care to censor the, you know the wrong sort of literature. You know there's this wonderful story, you know, of you know, one of the great writers, Sholokhov, um, trying to get one of his novels published, and he's running into trouble, so he writes to Stalin to intervene. And he doesn't expect an answer, but he gets summoned, you know, to the Kremlin, 
And there sitting there is Stalin, the head of the economy, the head of the army, maybe the head of the police, I'm not sure, don't remember that now. Um, He summoned them all to listen to his answer. He has read this novel carefully, offers his criticisms of it, and then concludes, um, yes, you can publish it with these changes, and you've got to change the title. Now, could you imagine, you know, any American, English, French prime minister taking the time to do that and then summoning all these great, but literature is that important in Russia, you know, and, you know, we usually think of, you know, Stalin as an illiterate thug, but it was, was, this was definitely not the case. I mean, he had a library of 20,000 books, you know, most of which he selected with his own catalog system himself. His view about, you know, what literature should be was, you know, very narrow. Um, but he was hardly illiterate, you know, and he knew, as so many Russians would have, that this, you know, this was the most important thing. And that didn't change under under communism. It was, it was because it was the most important thing you had to control it so much. Hmm. In fact, I thought that that made it suddenly make all the censorship made so much more sense viewed through that lens, right? Why would you spend so much time and effort censoring something that isn't important, right? So that makes quite a lot of sense to think of it that way. Yeah, the poet Osip Mandelstam, you know, um, his, you know, his wife's memoirs and the Jesuits are one of the, I think one of the great pieces of 20th century literature of prose, but he, he records him saying that, um, I am confident in the future because poetry is so respected in our country, they even shoot people for it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, he's got a point there. Um, One thing that I found particularly helpful about the book and kind of going back to why you wrote this um, makes a lot of sense that this has come after a lot of work and thinking is how incredibly organized it is to make sense of all of these debates um, and these different intellectual traditions. And one aspect of this um, is in part two of the book, you talk about three different types of thinker of the kinds of people engaged in these questions. So can you take us through kind of briefly what the three types are and why you sort of split up or made this analytical category? Yes, that's a really good question. It took me a long time to figure out how to organize, you know, all this material. Um, But I realized at one point that before you can really get a feel for what the debates were like, you had to have some sense of who the debaters were and, you know, how they thought and felt about the world. And so, of course, you could have, choice of three is arbitrary. I could have made it five types, but three really struck me. Um, you know, types of intellectuals or writers and <clears throat> how they felt about the world. Um, and these were, you know, I could describe these not only by, you know, their own self-descriptions, but because these types were the subject of, the great writers, Turgenev would write stories about a type, you know, Chekhov would. So I could draw upon, you know, the culture's own self-consciousness of these types. And the ones I picked, the first one was, you know, I called um, the pilgrim or the wanderer. Um, And that is people who are totally attached to some ideology or idea, but then they get disillusioned. Something tells them it's wrong. But instead of deciding, oh, well, maybe I ought to reassess and 
be a little skeptical <clears throat> and learn from this mistake, what they do is they simply leap to another ideology. There's never a moment of doubt in between. <clears throat> I mean, Chekhov had this absolutely wonderful story about this type called, you know, uh, On the Road. It's a short story, but it's beautiful. Um, and, you know, so you go from one ideology to the next, but you're never without, <clears throat> you know, an ideology. You're always looking You've got to have a key to existence. You just don't know what it is. And, you know, some of the characters in Russian literature are, are, are like this, like this too. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's you know, one type. I mean, it includes, I don't know, Russia's probably certainly most influential literary critic, Vissarion Belinsky, who, you know, was, you know, he's the one who discovered Dostoevsky and how great a writer Gogol was and discovered again. He was a brilliant literary critic and he, lurched from one ideology, you know, to the other. Um, and one of my favorite comments he made is, you know, he was completely, no matter what ideology he adhered to, he was intolerant of any other. Right? Um, so that doubt, you know, discarding ideology never made him skeptical. And as one of his lines I love is when he says, you know, if I had the power, it would go very badly for someone who believed what I believed six months ago. <clears throat> You know, it's, a, it's an extraordinary comment, right? <laughs> Very <laughs> self-aware to his credit. Yes, it is. I mean, he, the guy was a genius, a fanatic, but a genius, right? Um, and the second group uh, uh, is the ones I call the idealists. And there are two types of those, <clears throat> you know, the incorrigible ones who, you know, Turgenev compared them to Don Quixote. He has a famous essay called Hamlet and Don Quixote. Um, no matter what contrary evidence comes up, you find some way to discount it and stay with your ideal. And there are quite a number of, you know, stories about this. And, you know, you know, the great writers explore the psychology of, you know, the way in which people do this, you know, discount. And it's not, <clears throat> then they explore how they do it in life, you know, how, you know, in their attitudes to other people, not just, you know, in ideology. That becomes the subject of some of the novels. And the other type of idealist is the type that um, does get disillusioned. And so it doesn't lead to an ideology, but they have to handle the fact that they've devoted their life to something which has been proven wrong. This was particularly true with the, you know, the populist writers. Populism is another term we get from, from Russian, you know, in the 1870s. Um, and they sort of idealized the Russian people, but some of them then went into the countryside, you know, to live among them, and they discovered that they weren't these, you know, generous, you know, Christian, caring people, you know, noble savages, you know, but with <clears throat> love for each other, that they were, you know, drunk and brutal, cruel, you know, you know, <clears throat> they would you know, <clears throat> cheat each other, you know, cheat widows and orphans and throw them out on the street, anything, right? And this was, you know, terribly, you know, this was, how are they supposed to handle this? And, you know, one I particularly like, you know, he records all this in his wonderful um, stories and essays uh, that th this writer hasn't been translated, unlike most of the others, Gleb Uspensky. But, um, you know, some in one of them, he decides, well, if they're, if the peasants are perfect and they're brutal, then maybe I should be brutal. So he adopts an ideology of brutality. That doesn't last long, of course. <clears throat> um, and 
all he gets gradually all he sees around him is what he calls swinishness, which really and at the end, this is what really struck me. The man went mad and he spent his last days in an asylum, actually imagined that he was a pig, that is from swinishness. <clears throat> it's quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. You know, and in this period, an awful lot of the, the writers, composers, um, they either went mad <clears throat> or drank themselves to death. <clears throat> you know, Mussorgsky is probably a good example of that. Um, uh, <clears throat> or committed suicide. I mean, one after another. Um, and this is the disillusioned ideas, right? <clears throat> Um, the third type is, which particularly fascinated me, is what I call the revolutionist. A revolutionist is not a, a revol- the same as a revolutionary, because, you know, <clears throat> Lenin was a revolutionary, not a revolutionist. A revolutionist is someone who loves the thrill of revolution for its own sake, you know, the high of it, the way it takes you out of ordinary existence, beyond good and evil, the intensity of the danger, which can be like a drug. <clears throat> and, ter- you know, so you, instead of revolution for a goal, it becomes revolution for the sake of revolution. Then you become a terrorist for the sake of revolution, but then a terrorist for the sake of terrorism. <clears throat> and, and it keeps going on. And the, the memoirs of these, some of the terrorists are quite absolutely amazing. I was particularly interested in this one terrorist, um, called uh, Boris Savinkov, who was also a novelist, and he wrote novels about terrorism. That is, at the time, the two most prestigious occupations in Russia, novelist and terrorism. <laughs> and it isn't clear, if you read his novels, um, whether he was writing novels um, you know, to record his activities as a terrorist, or he'd become a terrorist at material for his novels. I mean, it's really hard to tell. He had you know, he kept an album with clippings of both his reviews of his books and of his terrorist <clears throat> activities. You know, this was absolutely extraordinary, this, you know, um, intensity, you know. Dostoevsky <clears throat> had seen the early stages of this, and, you know, he compared it to his own um, gambling addiction and to his, you know, moments of intensity in an epileptic seizure, <clears throat> and the revolutionists were, you know, very much like that. So that was the third type, right? And if you get these types here, then and imagine them in a room, the intensity of the debates um, becomes more comprehensible. You know, it's not like um, you know, I'm I, I'm a, lo- a lover of, of you know George Eliot, and in one of her novels, um, she says, you know, what makes Englishmen who they are is that. You know, you can have all these great ideas, but it doesn't disturb how you relate to other people or eat your dinner. <clears throat> You're sensible about things like that. Well, that's the opposite of being a Russian, where, you know, you it, it does change everything. You do become an extremist in everything, <clears throat> right? Um, so if you think of those people like that and then approach how they debate the questions um, and then imagine the writers encountering these types and because the writers tended to be people who were skeptical of ideology. They thought the world was too complicated. And that's really the, the great debate between the ideologues who thought you could have a single answer. That's the, the certainty part of my title. And the great writers who thought the world was too complex for that, that people were too complex. That, that's the wonder part, the sense of appreciation of the enormous complexity of moral questions, social questions, individual psychology, and the 
argument between these two groups um, is what I took to define the Russian tradition. So now that we understand these different thinkers, um, and especially kind of the stakes that they um, have for these questions, let's talk about the questions. Um, to part three of the book, what are the questions that you talk about in this section? And how did you determine which ones to include? <clears throat> well, that I mean, this, the second part is really interesting. First of all, of course, I could have picked more questions. Um, I picked the ones that when I was, you know, been working on this for so many years, kept seeming to come up over and over again. And there's probably something subjective about it. You know, these are things I was most interested in, or that you can find most explicit, let's say, in Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, and then I saw them elsewhere. So I imagine someone else might have come up with a few different questions, but I think they would have included these at least. Um, And... So one of them is, which I've already alluded to talking to you, is what is the role of theory in life as opposed to, you know, the complexities of individual or social experience? How far can you push? Can there, for example, can there be a comprehensive theory of ethics that tells you what to do? Can there be a comprehensive science of society, as, for example, the Marxist-Leninists thought there was, so that you can just put it into practice and guarantee <clears throat> the perfect society. For that matter, if by social science you mean a discipline, you know, not just that explores society in a, in a systematic way, but something that's a real hard science like physics, <clears throat> um, can there be a social science? You know, um, for over the past 10 years, I co-taught a class here with um, an economist. And economists, of course, think they do have <clears throat> a science. I, I clearly think they don't. Um, But, you know, you'll find in, let's say, Tolstoy, uh, systematic arguments as to why, if that's what you mean by a science, there can, not only isn't, but but could never be a social science. So the world will never allow that kind of simplification or regularization. So one question is the role of theory, right? Um, and you have smart, very smart people on both sides of this question. Um, and that, you know, if there were dumb people on both, you know, on one side and smart people on the other, it wouldn't be so interesting, right? Um, and another would be if we are nothing but material objects governed by the laws of nature, as let's say atheists and materialists thought we were. Where does morality come from? Is morality simply, I mean, if you're just following the laws of nature, you know, that's not morality. You know, if, you know, if I, let's say, were to drop a coin, it would fall at 9.8 meters per second squared. And then I asked, is that moral or immoral? The question would be ridiculous. But if that's all we are as complex material objects like that coin, then all moral questions are equally ridiculous, right? You can't ask them. They become you know, should questions disappear <clears throat> into is questions. So this is a, what really obsesses, let's say, um, Dostoevsky's heroes. Um, <clears throat> Ivan Karamazov, for instance, on the one hand, accepts this idea, um, but on the other hand, is deeply, deeply disturbed morally by um, people who abuse children. <clears throat> and on the one hand, you know, 
there's no way to pass a moral judgment. It's just the laws of nature. <clears throat> On the other hand, you have to pass moral judgment. And he, I mean, the insanity he eventually experiences is because he's torn apart by, by these two, you know, opposite positions. And so exploring the consequence of that argument, um, you know, <clears throat> for example, um, Lenin, <clears throat> and I wasn't quite aware of this before I um, started, you know, doing this book. <clears throat> he took the materialist position, you know, to an extreme. I think that even Ivan Karamazov hadn't hadn't imagined. Um, you know, he <clears throat> really thought that if you referred to uh, <clears throat> the sacredness of human life, you know, human <clears throat> dignity. That just proved you were not really a materialist, <clears throat> you know. So, you know, if someone, let's say, one of his subordinates would say, <clears throat> well, you know, we can do this in a way that, you know, gets what we want without killing so many people, he would have thought the person was crazy because you're not supposed to care about killing as many people. On the contrary, the more <clears throat> brutal, the more you prove you're a materialist. And that shows a great deal about, you know, um, you know, Soviet, Soviet ethics, <clears throat> you know, you were, you know, all these notions that we have about, you know, human rights and the dignity of each person, um, that they were explicitly, you know, rejected by the Soviet, you know, children were taught that compassion was a vice <clears throat> because for example, it might lead you to spare a class enemy. Uh, you know, I don't know any other culture <clears throat> from any other religion in the history of the world. Maybe there are some, I don't know them that have actually told people that compassion was a vice. It's extraordinary. But Russians take things to the extreme, right? I mean, I don't know any, I know lots of materialists in America. I don't know any of them who would say, who would say that, right? But they're, you know, the Russians would say, that's because you're not thinking of the implications of your ideas. You're allowing your social conditioning to lim limit how far you take the idea. But the next generation might not think that way. Um, uh, but in Russia, you know, the people actually did take things to that, that kind of extreme. And so these questions about, you know, the source of morality become really intense. Now, if you ask these questions when you're actually in, in the gulag, like the way Solzhenitsyn or the great writer Shalamov was, and you ask, well, so if there really, there's got to be such a thing as good and evil. If what I'm seeing here, but where does it come? Some of them ex come to explicitly reject materialism because they believe there must be an absolute good or evil. And for some of them, <clears throat> that leads to a belief in God. <clears throat> for others, just to, you know, belief in philosophical ideals. Um, and that's why it, it struck me that here is, you know, an officially atheist state where atheism is its first principle. And if you look at the great literary works that came out of it, you know, the three of the great novels um, are, you know, explicitly, um, the three great novels are explicitly Christian. It's And a fourth one is, is Jewish, who but who believes in, you know, moral absolutes. You know, Dr. Zhivago is a Christian novel, the wonderful novel by... Mikhail Bulgakov, the master of Margarita. <clears throat> Solzhenitsyn describes how he found faith, you know, in the Gulag. And then, you know, Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate is about 
the need to believe in absolutes, although <clears throat> it's not specified any particular, you know, religion <clears throat> to do that. That's reaction against that extreme interpretation of materialism and atheism <clears throat> that, you know, Soviets went to. But the question is defined right there in the 1860s and 70s, you know, in Dostoevsky's novels. <clears throat> so that be another question. Then a question was, um, here I relied on um, my favorite Russian philosopher and critic, Mikhail Bakhtin, um, who, used a, who used to write in his early works, before he started talking about literature, about our ethical responsibilities and how we try to avoid them. And that becomes a, you know, a key theme in Russian history. Yes, you know you should do this, but you find some excuse, but after all, it's kind of dangerous to, you know, <clears throat> to do this in, in the Soviet period. So the question was, how do we avoid our ethical responsibilities and how can we show that the excuses we give you know, are, are, not, are, are not valid? Uh, Bakhtin called this, you know, finding an illegitimate alibi. <clears throat> and he liked to repeat, we have no alibi. There's no, what I can do at this moment now, <clears throat> no one else can do ever. One of the ways people <clears throat> try to, you know, e escape their responsibility is they say they're acting representatively. Well, <clears throat> I'm not doing it. I'm just the agent of the party here. I'm just representing it. <clears throat> and, you know, what's wrong with that way of thinking. But we have all these ways, even in daily life, we find, you know, without a party, we find ways of avoiding a responsibility that way. You know, that's what, you know, a novel like Anna Karenina will, will deal with, you know, without any particular ideology. But the ideology lets us see that more clearly. Um, then you've got, um, you know, questions about time. And one form it might be, well, if the world is governed by deterministic laws, then the future is already given. You know, um, you know the little famous line of Omar Khayyam, the first day of creation wrote what the last day of reckoning shall read. If you are, you know, a hardcore determinist in that way, then whatever happens has to happen. And you get people arguing that and trying to form social and moral theories based on that. But you also get people arguing, coming through with highly principled arguments for, for contingency and the openness of time. That is the idea that at any given moment, more than one thing is possible. Not everything, you know, maybe just a few things, but more than one thing is possible. And, you know, in that sense that if things are contingent, if you played the tape over again, something else could happen. And if that's the case, then our individual lives are not predetermined. That's what we get our moral responsibility from. And projected on history, you know, it is a way of refuting the ideas that the future of, of, of a country is given by the, the laws of history. You know, Russians have different ideologies where liberal communists thought that there were laws of history that, you know, if you were liberal, you thought that meant it's going to be like Western Europe and there's no way around it. That's just a law of history. If you were a communist, you thought it was leading to, you know, what the Soviets were. Um, 
But then there were people who offered all these principal arguments that time was genuinely open, that we can't think that way. You know, you, you see people thinking that way when they speak of um, history with a capital H as an agent. You know, there's a character in, in one novel, Soviet novel, you know, who's asked, well, shouldn't we be concerned by all these innocent people that we have to kill in order, you know, to build communism? And the answer is, but who is doing the killing, she's told. It's history with a capital H. You know, no one's responsible. This is just how history is. You have the sense of history as an agent. It seems like a very peculiar thing. History, for me, is just the sum total events that happen. How can it be an agent? But this different ways of thinking, <clears throat> it is, right? And it's a way of thinking that the idea of the openness of time would um, lead you to question. Um, so <clears throat> that becomes another question. <clears throat> so I keep going with yet more. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I mean, you wrote the book. So if you'd like to tell us about more of the questions it explores, please feel free. Or I've got a few I'd, I'm going to ask you about in more detail, but we can keep going and I'll come back to them. Well, I'll just briefly outline. Another one is, um, are the most important events, the big, noticeable, dramatic ones, the ones that make good stories, or is it the hundred million small, ordinary events we barely notice? <clears throat> and, you know, realist novels are fundamentally about the small, ordinary events, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, here, you know, again, I'll go back to, um, you know, <clears throat> George Eliot. That's the whole theme of, you know, Middlemarch, both the beginning and the end, right? But, and, and I love her because she makes this explicitly. Most, you know, English novelists don't. But in Tolstoy, that is the key idea. This is his absolutely central idea. You know, War and Peace is built around it. Amanda Karenina is built around it. That the, you know, the good life is the one lived at ordinary moments. And what makes events happen is even at big moments, dramatic moments, they are the prana of, of ordinary moments. But the other view is that, you know, a romantic historical view, a romantic view of, of life, that the dramatic, the operatic, you know, the melodramatic are really important. I mean, there's a reason Tolstoy hated opera, right, because of that. He took it as a whole view of life. Um, and finally, the last question would be, um, you know, does life have a meaning at all? Um, and, of course, you might say, no, it's just, you know, one damn thing after the other, it's just laws of nature. Or you might say what, you know, has been, you know, the common view since, I don't know, I'm guessing on the time. <clears throat> it was commonplace in Alexander Pope's time that, you know, of course, the goal of life is happiness. <clears throat> Where else could be? What else it could be? And in Russian literature, you get a lot of people just exploring why such a view is simply shallow. <clears throat> right? there are, if all you think of is your personal happiness, you're going to live a shallow life. Well, then what else could be, you know, life's meaning and, you know, that's what the great Russian novels um, are all about. And they come up with different answers. No definitive answer, of course, but they deepen our understanding of the question. I'd love to ask you about a few of those questions um, in more detail, uh, kind of going from the 
I suppose one of the more the ones you've just mentioned, uh, the sort of the everyday versus the melodramatic, if I'm not mistaken, the everyday is what you call the prosaic perspective, um, which I must admit, by the time I got to that part of the book and was very much like, OK, I'm totally buying this idea that the Russians are taking everything to the extreme, right? The terrorists and the revolutionists for the sake of terror. Um, and yet now there's this prosaic perspective that is all about the everyday and not the melodramatic. So why do you think this developed? <clears throat> oh, you've asked, I mean, that's exactly the right question. I mean, um, I think it developed as when a lot of things in Russian literature develop as a reaction <clears throat> against the opposite view, right? You know, the view of life is intensity, revolution, the dramatic. <clears throat> when you see what's wrong with that, you formulate, particularly if you're a Russian, you formulate the opposite view, right? So you get an, ex and Tolstoy, Tolstoy takes us to an extreme, you know, <clears throat> let's be moderates extremely, you can say sometimes what Tolstoy sounds like, um, uh, you know, but what is the opposite view then? Well, the opposite view is, you know, some total of ordinary events matters. The most important events of your life, he does this with some of his characters, are ones that pass, as he says in Anna Karenin about one character, they're like golden sand and they pass unnoticed like golden sand because you're focused on something else. Or there's a character in War and Peace, you know, who has his happiest moment, you know, at, at one that doesn't matter for anything, you know. It's not the one you think of. It's not, you know, his wedding or some triumph. It's... If he's telling the story of his life, he wouldn't even think of it. But there it is. <clears throat> the author can point it out. You know, this, you know, uh, Chekhov built his plays <clears throat> around this as well as his stories. You know, he has one comment where he says, you know, people are just dining, having dinner, and all you hear is the clank of the cutlery, and yet lives are being smashed. <clears throat> But, you know, Chekhov's plays are the opposite of dramatic. Plays are supposed to be dramatic at that time, right, to keep the audience. As you know, his plays developed their drama from the undramatic, un right? You know, one of the most famous comments about them is the only thing that happens in The Three Sisters is that three sisters don't go to Moscow. <clears throat> um, you know, so it's the fact that so many, you know, you, you have your Bakunins and Lenins and all the extremists, you know, who see the extreme as everything, what's the extreme opposite of that? And it's that, you know, that the ordinary is everything. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm saying Tolstoy even takes that anti-extremism to an extreme. <clears throat> Very much so. I, I thought that that was a really interesting way to think about it, that it's actually all extremes. And sometimes being extreme is kind of being against that and really focusing on the ordinary, but it does actually kind of still make sense within this framework of going for whatever the end is. You know, I mean, the only, there, you know, there were a handful of Russian thinkers who were not by temperament extremists <clears throat> and they tend to be the you know, most humane and most tolerant. That's why, you know, I said, Chekhov was the obvious example. And that's why I say towards the end that, if the book has a hero, it's 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 Chekhov, right? <clears throat> um, you know, his he can describe all this, but he has a kind of 
humane modesty. He doesn't have the answers that, that to me, makes it extremely appealing. You know? mm-hmm. um, One thing I found really interesting um, is given this sort of tendency to the extreme, and obviously what you said about Lenin earlier, kind of taking the ends justify the means, really quite far. And what you said right at the beginning, that so many of these questions appear in the czarist era and then get in some ways even trickier to grapple with in the Soviet period when a lot of the kind of extreme ethical choices really are kind of put right in front of people. They're no longer hypothetical. And I thought it was really interesting that you talked about in the book that Dostoevsky was the thinker that so specifically, so clearly understood and articulated what we would now consider, you know, Soviet totalitarianism, right? And despite the fact that these debates were ongoing before we actually get to this point, he was really the one who kind of saw where this was going. Why do you think he sort of was able to have that view? Well, yeah, it's it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. You know, his, you know, particularly in his novel, The Possessed, um, he has characters predicting things that sound crazy. No one ever do them. And if they didn't happen in Soviet Russia, let's say they happened in the Chinese Cultural Revolution <clears throat> or, you know, with the Khmer Rouge, <clears throat> you know, He's, how did he know this? I, I wondered, used to wonder about that. How could he know? And then I think it was that he really understood the psychology of the intelligence. You know, he has been, a, you know, a former, you know, radical and revolutionary who was sent to Siberia, <clears throat> knew the psychology of these people because he had been, been one of them, um, and then asked himself. What would these people do if they ever didn't get the power they're seeking? What would they do? Nothing would restrain them, so what would happen? And so I think he's unique in that, I don't know any other you know, 19th century thinker anywhere who, described, who saw the 20th century as the era of what we call totalitarianism. You know, just about everybody else was thinking of it as, you know, more and more humanity and liberal reforms and prosperity and, and you know, <clears throat> I don't know, you know, the sort of thing that you might do if you're doing <clears throat> British or maybe Danish history, something like that, right? But <clears throat> not, after all, what happened to about, you know, 40% of humanity, right? Um, you know, in, in totalitarian regimes in the 20th century. Dostoevsky saw it, you know, and it's quite extraordinary, you know, the insights he had. And I think it's because, you know, he asked what these people would do. He knew them because he was one of them. If they ever got power, you know, Tolstoy had never been one of those people. He couldn't ask something like that. Hmm. And yet, I don't know, I'm still so stunned by that, um, having read it. So thank you for telling us a bit more about it. Um, I think it's probably pretty obvious to listeners at this point that, uh, not only are these questions as yet unanswered, um, but one could really go into massive amounts of detail <laughs> discussing any of them. I'm sure I could keep you here for hours. Um, but of course, I don't want to do that. And I think we've gotten a 
decent sense, at least, of the wonderful things in the book for listeners who want to get more into all of these questions and the thinkers. So I will finish with my final question, um, which is that now that this book is available, um, is there anything you might be working on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on these questions that you'd like to share with us? Oh, well, then, thank you for asking that. Um, yes, I'm, I'm working on one thing I had to leave out of the book that didn't really fit, but which you know, seems to me very pertinent you know, to how Russians think today. It's the question, Russians are, in addition to obsessed with literature, they have been obsessed, as I imagine, even more than Germans, perhaps, with the question... What does it? What is the essence of Russianness? What is our identity? What does it mean to be, you know, a Russian? And you know, you get an amazing number of creative, intelligent people formulating what seem on the surface to be absurd and are certainly, you know, reprehensible ideologies, right? But genius is doing them. Um, in the service of this is what we Russians are. And sometimes it leads them to, you know, the occult and, or, you know, you know <clears throat> Marxist Leninism is even given in a, you know, an occult interpretation. Um, Russians are a messianic people. They're there, you know, they are the victims of the world. And there's a lot of talk today of something called Russophobia, you know, we are the victims of everything. Where does this all come from and how does it develop? And none of that is really in, um, uh, you know, wonder confront certainty, but, you know, it is, you can see it already, you know, in some of Dostoevsky where, you know, he has this idea that if you define yourself as a victim, you feel entitled to do anything because you're just creating justice by getting back at people. His victims are like that. And then, you know, he falls prey to that psychology himself and defends Russia in those terms, forgetting that he himself has analyzed where it leads to. So Russian nationalism has that kind of aura to it. And I've been writing, you know, a series of articles, and I'll probably write a book on on that. But I'm still learning, you know, a great deal about it. In, you know, my notes for the, the book I wrote, I have a, I kept coming across all sorts of interesting things like this. Like I noticed that over and over again, you know, if a Russian wants to define himself or herself, <clears throat> they might do it in this way. I mean, you know, in War and Peace, Natasha is with her family's, the family is leaving Moscow at the last minute. They have all their belongings piled onto carts, <clears throat> you know, to get out. It's all they have in the world. Um, and there are these soldiers who need a ride to get out, but to take them they'd have to throw all their belongings out <clears throat> and they're reluctant to do it and finally natasha says what are we a lot of lousy germans <clears throat> that is a russian if you want to say what a russian is you first say what a german is and then you're the opposite right i noticed that one right <clears throat> it happens over and over again right to the present you know germans are prudent and practical <clears throat> we are you know soul we have soul <clears throat> That's its relatively benign form. In a stronger form, it comes to, you know, defining yourself with real hatred of other groups. And the two most common targets are Poles and Jews, you know, there. So this has a lot to do with, you know, let's say the development of 
uh, Russian anti-Semitism. You have a lot of Russian nationalists who are not anti-Semites, but you have a substantial number of, you know, who are, and that becomes uh, <clears throat> interesting too. So all these are the questions I'm trying to sort out right now. Well, you managed to sort them out uh, a bunch of similar big questions in this book. So best of luck with that next project. Of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Wonder Confronts Certainty, Russian Writers on the Timeless Questions and Why Their Answers Matter, just published by Harvard University Press. Gary, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I I really enjoyed this, this splendid interview.